Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and this is where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter, Built by Scott, and Instagram at King O'Kane, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page, Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to empower and inspire a community of people who take every opportunity to live a high-performing life. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. If you're in human performance today, you recognize that the industry has changed. Gone are the days of highly focused specialists who live in their isolated lanes, working without the understanding of the whole human being. The world of human performance is about integration today. It's about recognizing what your client needs to do to perform at their highest potential, discovering the parts of the puzzle of performance that need work, while keeping this person moving, training, performing, and succeeding seamlessly. Reconditioning is an operating system for this new world of human performance. The practice honors the role of each specialization and helps define the most powerful and tactical use of interventions that will make a difference. You don't take your car to the garage only when it's broken. You schedule for regular maintenance so that it keeps running smoothly when you need it. The human body is no different and reconditioning professionals are those best prepared to keep the human body running. Check out our courses at ReconditioningHQ.com today. Follow our robust educational programming and become the reconditioning professional everyone wants to work with. It's been four years that Leave Your Mark has been up and running. And during these four years, uh, we've had a fantastic podcast sponsor in Matrix Fitness. I have to thank Greg Lawler for his commitment to this podcast and his commitment and his team's commitment to what we're trying to do is helping you in the community see and listen to some of the best in the business of human performance. And to talk about the best in the business, well, right back at Matrix Fitness, they are the best in the business at what they do, and they serve uh, the continuum of human performance from the day-to-day person who is looking just to stay fit and, uh, and to aspire to be healthy to the person who wants to be out uh, performing at their best in an athletic endeavor. They have all the equipment that spans that continuum. They're ready to help you, the practitioner, or you, the person who wants to build your at-home facility or a facility or an institutional facility to have success with your clients or with yourself. So I encourage you to take a look at their products. Head over to teamupwithmatrix.ca today and check out what they're doing. They have outstanding equipment and outstanding customer service. So once again, thank you to Matrix for supporting Leave Your Mark and take some time today to check them out. Wow, what's going on at ReconditioningHQ.com these days is insane. Uh, you can find the entire R1 Foundations course online and available to digest at your leisure. The R2 Designs course is right there as well, fully loaded. R3 Collab is a combination of online material all about the neurological system and then a live laboratory where we dive deep on everything reconditioning. These three courses walk you through the process of reconditioning all the information and what we've done now is we've attached to all of this a mastermind community and when you're in the mastermind community it's 20 bucks a month uh, and you have access to weekly meetings that we're going to be doing on case studies 
all kinds of gem material from things that we've done, uh, guest presenters, guest interviews. We have Matt Jordan coming up in a few weeks, Nick Ward from Altus coming in a few weeks as well. So we've got some outstanding people coming as guests in the future. We are basically in that mastermind combining uh, revolving eight-week labs for each of those courses. So they're cycling through. We're going to do eight weeks and take a break to another eight weeks. So if you're in R1 and you want to come in and learn while you're in the mastermind, we have meetings once a week for an hour to go through the material. So it keeps you accountable, allows you to touch base with what you've learned, ask your questions. It really allows you to dive deep on all the information. On top of that, because the world is starting to open up a little bit, we are going to have our first live lab in Montreal, May 14th, 15th for R1 Foundations. And effectively, what we're going to do is when you purchase a course, you have all that material online. You have access to the mastermind and the community material and the community learning. And then you can come with to this meeting on the weekend for two days and just dive deep on how to play with all the information. And so it's not a, a, a teaching lab as much as it is a learning lab, a trying lab, a context lab. And that's what we've got uh, big time for everybody these days. And then on top of that, the International Hockey Performance Summit is pivoted to virtual June 10 to 12. All the powerful content, we have kept it all in there. We've revised the curriculum. You can go online, take a look at it. The SCAF Summit pre-summit is going to be there too. So three days of incredible information is going to be available to you. If you have an interest in hockey performance or foundationally the people People who are speaking at this thing are the top of the world at what they do. So you're going to take away whether it's hockey related or just training and performance related. It's there for you. So come and join us uh, virtually. It's all there for the taking. And then on top of that, if you are interested in ski performance training and you want to learn to train to train uh, or train to compete with your athletes that you're working with off snow, I am doing a ski program, a workshop on April 23rd, 24th in Mont-Tremblant, Quebec. It is also virtual as well. So it's live and virtual. It's a hybrid event. You can jump on that and that's available right now. Going to be dropping the hammer on that April 23rd, 24th. So uh, look forward to having you with us in anything we're doing reconditioning today. Head over to reconditioninghq.com to check out all our offerings. As an avid listener of the Leave Your Mark podcast, I'm sure you recognize the process that I take our guests through in learning about their lives and understanding what it is taken for them to become the professionals and the successes that they've had in their lives and effectively there's a lot of learning that we go through and everybody that I talk to talks about mentorship and influential people in their lives and the podcast has always been my offering to the community at large uh, for you to see and learn from the insights of others. But now what I'm doing is uh, at the beginning of May I am launching the Leave Your Mark Life Lab, and this is going to be my stewardship process for helping you become the professional you want to be through mentorship, through reflection, through directed conversation, giving you skills, providing accountability, 
and talking about your progress and inside a group of people who are all trying to do the same thing, providing you with a, a lens uh, of, of reflection on yourself and the things that you want to accomplish and recognize that you need to put as much into yourself as you do into others. And this industry is crazy when it comes to us taking care of everybody else but not taking care of ourselves. So I want to change that. That's what the LYM Life Lab is all about. I encourage you to head over to the Leave Your Mark website, which is lymlab.com. Check out what we're offering in the LYM Life Lab section. You can also download two free videos that I created that are a starter kit to this process and looking at creating change in your life. And I would be remiss if I didn't say, hey, grab yourself a hat while you're there because Leave Your Mark hats are sick lids if I do say so myself. And lastly, I want to uh, invite you to check out the latest episodes and please take the time to go over and leave a comment, leave a rating on your favorite streaming service because it helps us get out to more people. So without further ado, let's get on to the podcast. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Kaba Tolbert. Kaba is the women's sprints, hurdles, and horizontal jumps coach for Harvard University, as well as the associate head coach of the squad for the past 10 years. Kaba's athletes in his program have continued to experience impressive results throughout his tenure at Harvard. Tolbert began his coaching career in Iowa Wesleyan and produced 21 All-Americans in the school's first national champions. During his tenure, his athletes set 25 school records, 21 conference records, and broke two national marks. After leaving Iowa, Wesley and Keba, Keba spent time and experienced success in McKendree, Syracuse University, Portland State, and UTEP. A graduate of Colby College, where he earned a bachelor's degree in philosophy, Tolbert earned his master's of arts degree in exercise science in 1996 from Smith. He's also, most importantly, a husband and a father. I am pleased to have him on the show today. Welcome, Keba. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And, uh, glad to be on and happy to talk. Yeah. So where hail from originally? Where did you grow up? So I grew up, um, I was born in New York City, but yeah. then before I knew it, like, you know, I didn't have any consciousness about it. I, I grew up in Rochester, New York, hmm. um, upstate. And I was in went to the same school from kindergarten to the middle of seventh grade. And my mother's from New York City, so my grandmother, my uncles, all of them, and my, my father that raised me, him, a lot of his family was in New York City as well. Um, he's from Tennessee, but it, but his family was in New York. So we'd go to New York fairly often. Like, I'd spend summers in New York with my grandmother, and we'd go vacation in New York. And my grandmother and I would fly all around the country. Like, we'd go to Ohio, and we'd go to Florida, and we'd go to California, and we'd hang out. But um, in the middle of seventh grade, we moved to New York City. My parents had split up, and we moved to New York City. And so that was a big change. And then, um, so I'm from New York, um, Rochester in the Bronx. Hmm. And, um, yeah. Yeah, growing up was, uh, what was your sort of influence? Uh, was it more sort of an a- athletic influence or an academic influence or uh uh, what were the things that were pushing you in directions in the in the later stages of your life when you were growing up? Mm, I would say, you know, when I was young, you know, I, I played football, but it wasn't like all consuming. You know, I played football from, you know, you start practice in the summer and you finish up around Thanksgiving, you know, or just before even. And um, I played for 
three years in Rochester, and our team won a state title in the you know Pop Warner Division, um, and that was that was cool. That was fun. It was a um, basically an all black team. It was I, I lived in the suburbs, but it was at a youth center that I went to summer camp at in the, in the city. And so they're in, in the league, there might've been eight or 10 teams. I don't remember, but there were two all black teams. Um, I was one of them. And there was another one on the other side of town. And um, we were pretty good. And, and, but we won a state title um, my second year playing. And that was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't play any other sports um, formally. Like you know, we, we had recess and recess was serious. We played kickball and dodgeball and, <laughs> race and whatever tag football or tag or whatever, you know, play softball in the park and baseball in the park. But really sports wise, I played football when I was um, in seventh grade, sixth grade and fifth grade. And then when I moved to New York, I played football there as well. Mm. Um, I was always one of the fastest people at my school, Mm. Um, especially as I got older, like, you know, like, like fourth grade or so, Um, like I'd always race and be the fastest. And on our team, and football was one of the fastest people too. And then when I got to New York City, there was like a uh, like a fun race. There was a you know a, 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 my part of the Bronx I lived in was called Co-op City, and they had like a festival day, and they had a race um, that the local track club put on. It was maybe like you know 100 yards. I don't know. It was on the grass, and mm-hmm. I won. And my brother won his division, and. That's when I was like, oh, maybe I'll do track one day. You know, my mother did track, and but I didn't think much of it. And then there was no track in junior high. At the school level, there were clubs, but I didn't, I didn't even know about clubs then. Mm. So when I went to high school, I knew I was going to do track. So I went, I went to boarding school for two years, um, and I did track there, and I was pretty good. And then when I came back to New York City for my junior and senior high school, um, I thought I was good, but I found out what good was. <laughs> to being the fastest person like in the in the school and one of the fastest people in the league to being like um, I tried out for the Empire State Games that summer between my junior, my sophomore and junior year. And like I said, I thought I was fast because I was like, oh, man, I'm the best guy in the league and this, that and the other. And Empire State Games trials, like I was running like 11-3 and like 23-5 or something like that, 23-6, something like that at the time. Maybe a little faster in 200, but um, guys were running like 10-7 and 10-8. And I was like, <laughs> oh, in the prelims. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't make the final. I didn't make the final Empire State Games trials in New York City. I was like, "Oh my God! Like this is this is another level, you know." Um, and guys were in like twenty ones, and I was like, twenty ones? Like you'd have thought they were record, world record holders to me." So, <laughs> I ended up at Truman High School, which is the, the school in my neighborhood, and they had won the state title in the four by one that year before I got there. And so um, they were the best team in the state, and then I was I ended up making the relay that year, and we ended up being the second fastest team in the state. But mm. because New York's and the way you advanced to the state meet at that time in New York, New York City was one region. Mm. Only the best relay out of each region made it to the state. Mm. So we were second in the city championships. We ran like 41-9. Boys and girls high school ran 41-6. They went to the state meet and we didn't. And mm. all we were better than everybody else, but we couldn't go to the state meet. You know? <laughs> and so um just cool. things like that, you know, like, yeah, like yeah, yeah. it was an, it was an education. You know, right. I'll tell you the other thing. My junior year in high school, when I was at Truman, we went to the high school national meet down in Annapolis, Maryland, the indoor meet. And in my prelim of the 200, I ran against the eventual national champion. Well, the next year, the same thing happened too. So I went from thinking I was really good to realize like, oh, 
I need to, I'm just kind of good, you know, really fast. <laughs> did you have, uh, as a little kid, did you have dreams of being something someday other than, you know, getting into football and track where did you have aspirations to be something or did you dream about being something every day when you were um, running around? Not really. I mean, like not when I was really young. I mean, I thought I wanted to be at one point, you know, a firefighter. I thought I wanted to be, a, I thought I wanted to be a psychologist actually. Mm-hmm. So my grandmother who, um, you look here, the person that's holding me right up here. That's my grandmother. Yeah, okay. Um, she um she was really into education. We can talk more about that later. But she used to get, I mean, I must have been like in fourth, fifth grade. Because I was like, oh, I think I'm going to be a psychologist. I mean, I didn't, I had, wasn't much thought behind it. It just, I don't know why. But she'd order me a subscription for psychology today. Hmm. And I read some of it. But I mean, just because she thought I was interested, she got us. That's the kind of person she was. If you thought you were interested in something, she was going to encourage you. Hmm. Well, so what was the, what was the, call it the cultural slash intensity challenge coming back from Rochester to New York? I mean, I lived in New York for a while. It's a very frenetic place. So you're living, you're growing up kind of in the burbs and then you come into the Bronx. That's, that's a, that's a culture shift. Like how did, how did you react to that? Was it challenging (laughs) for you? (laughs) Well, I could tell you like, like Rochester is a fairly decent sized city, Mm -hmm. but like, and, and, you know, it's only six hours from New York. You know, it's in the same state. Mm-hmm. But at that time, especially, you know, stuff in New York City that was really, like, I spent the summers there, and the stuff that was really cool in New York would get to Rochester like a month and a half later. It would, be, it would blow up then, you know? And I know that sounds weird, because you're like, you're in the same state, what are you talking about? But it's just mm-hmm. how it was. Like, New York was always, New York was and still is always ahead. Mm-hmm. So, like, when I, when I moved from Rochester to New York, it's two things. You got to remember, I was in seventh grade. It was a K-2-8. It was, um, I had been in the same school my whole life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you go through varying degrees of cool. Like, I was I was one of the big kids, and I was one of the kids who had been there forever. And everyone knows you. The teachers know you. The principal knows you. The kids you. You're a cool guy because mm-hmm. you're just in seventh grade, you know. <laughs> and it was a private school. You know, it was a private school. So, I mean, in my, cl- my seventh grade class, maybe there were 25 people. Mm-hmm. When all the classes were about that size, so it wasn't a big school. So I mean, you know, it's not hard to be known, or hard to be popular. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't ascribe to anything that I necessarily had. I just I'm an older kid in the school. You know, my my younger brother went to the same school. He his whole life, and so on and so forth. So going from that to public school in the Bronx was like, oh my god! I went from one of the coolest kids to one of the uncoolest kids you've ever seen in your life. And and the mistakes I made trying to fit in got me in a lot of trouble. Oh, okay. You know, like I, I had the wrong jacket, the wrong clothes, the wrong shoelaces. Like the shoelaces that were cool at the time in Rochester were already passe in New York. You know, the <laughs> Michael Jackson beaded jacket that was cool in Rochester was not cool in New York anymore. I was gone. You know, so, so moving there, and my mother didn't understand. Like I, I, I was trying to be cool and fit in, and like it seemed like everybody when I got to I went to IS one eighty intermediate school eighty for eighth grade in seventh grade. Sorry. Everybody seemed to just know everything and they mm. seemed to like just get it. And I'm trying to like walk right, talk right, look right, dress right. And you know how <laughs> seventh graders are in general. They are everyone that already puts on an air of acting like they know. Well, like it's even different in a different city in a public school. Mm. So me trying to fit in and act cool got me in a lot of trouble and a lot of fights. And um, <laughs> for about the first month, um, my brother and I were getting chased home every day. Oh, wow. I got out of school before him. So I get out of school. I'd hide and duck. 
go get him. We try to we run home before they, they chased us. Sometimes we'd fight. Sometimes we'd lose. Sometimes we'd win. What happened? And eventually, stopped when we started winning a couple of the fights. They kind of said, "All right, we'll leave y'all alone." They left us alone. <laughs> but I did not fit in at first, and I'm already nerdy and awkward anyway. You know? <laughs> so it was it was a rough introduction to living in New York City. I guess it helped to be uh, quick at that time. Then it too, did. <laughs> it did. Um, um, and I'll tell you the other thing, and it's going to sound funny. Like, like in my soul, I'm a b boy. Like, I love hip-hop culture and music and all that, especially back then. And, you know, I tell people now, I, I think it's true. My mother said, look, I wanted one of those big radio boxes, the big boom boxes. Mm-hmm. I, I was dying for one. My father was like, no. My mother was like, no. They probably cost back then like $175. That was a lot of money in 1984 and 85. Mm-hmm. But I was like, oh, if she said, look, you know, we're saving money for college and everything. But, you know, we'll, we'll, if we take this, you can't go to college. Give me the box. You know, so like, all the food. <laughs> When I got to New York, there was a winter festival. We got there right, right before Christmas. There was a winter festival. It was like a 10-minute walk from our apartment building. And all the people that seemed cool, some of them were probably doing some illegal things. Some of them were probably just whatever. But they had the hugest box, and they, were, they could sit. They were sitting on them, and they were blasting the, the best hip-hop music. You know, like I said, this is 84, 85. I thought, that's the life I want to live. <laughs> I want, and they had the jackets and, and you know, the girls were like, oh, my God. I was like, I want to be that dude. Now, you know, many years later, I get it. But, like, if you could have said to me, okay, but look, you can live that life or 25 years later, you can be this coach at Harvard. Get Harvard. <laughs> that was my, and I wasn't like, I wasn't a bad kid. I just wanted to be cool. Yeah, yeah. You know? So that was like the, my introduction to living in New York is like the uncoolest kid ever. <laughs> Did you ever get the shift into being the cool kid or did that sort of never really um, happen for you in essence? It happened, <laughs> it happened um, for, in two ways. One is you know, being on the track team at Truman, you know, when I came back to New York City, my junior high school, hmm. I was on a good team and, you know, we'd run and do well. So that helped. And then I was also, um, I was a sports editor for a high school paper and I was the sports writer for a local paper. Hmm. One of the sports writers for a local paper. So I got to interview the athletes. <laughs> And write articles on them and stuff like that, and coaches. And so, I became cool enough. Mm. You know, like I was never like the popular guy, but I was cool that no one by bothered me. And people were like friends with me and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it helped being older. You know, too. But those those things helped a lot. Growing up in New York, you know, I, di- I didn't grow up there. I lived there, but I can imagine like there's there's so much sport culture there. There's so many sports teams. Did you have a favorite sports team that you kind of looked up to or looked at? And did you try sneaking into the ballpark or the or any of those kinds of things when you were a kid? Good good um, stories around that. <laughs> I was a Yankees fan. Okay. Um, but from from when, like when I was in Rochester, I was a Yankees fan, and the um. Rochester had a triple A team called the Rochester Red Wings, and they were the they were the triple A team for the Orioles. Hmm. But when I was young, when I used to go to New York in the summers, um, the Yankees were good, and my my grandfather and my family liked the Yankees, and they had Reggie Jackson bars. And so I didn't even like the I didn't even like the bars, but I liked I was like, man, Reggie Jackson has a candy bar. And Reggie Jackson, <laughs> my favorite baseball player of all time. So oh, yeah. um I never got sneaking into the the ballpark. I went to some games when I was younger, um, but I really started getting into track when I got to high school. So I started subscribing to like track and field news. And like in New York, they had the Mills games, and they had um, the Italis games were in New Jersey. But there was another game, another meet that came back to New York, and so they had these big meets in New York City. And so I used to go to those. And at, at Randall's Island, um, 
they host big meets and my freshman year of college, they hosted the U.S. championships. Mm. And, um, Leroy Burrell set the world record and Carlos got second. And Carlos was my favorite athlete, still is in the world. And I got to see Leroy Burrell in person set a world record. So seeing mm. athletes like that, like they have this meet called the New York Games that would come to New York City. And so I was really into track. Mm. I liked football then. I was a Bill, I was a Giants fan because of Bill Parcells mm. um, and, and people like that. So, But the baseball was my favorite sport to uh, be a fan of, and I liked the Giants a lot at that time as well. Did you have an early coaching influence? Like you, you've become a coach, and we're going to unpack that a little bit, but did you have an early coaching influence that in some way still inspires you today in the work that you do or really shaped you as a, as a young person? There are several. The first two, though, were um, – Tom Telez because he coached Carl Lewis. So I, I used to, when I was so when I got to New York, it's a roundabout story, but it makes sense. There was a there was a club called the Zodiac's Track Club in in Co-op City in the Bronx where I lived, but it was all girls. They didn't take any boys, and they had they had slew national champions, record holders, junior Olympic champions. So I begged Mr. Taylor that us on the team. Like, sorry, you know, no, sorry, no, and. You know, it's only girls, blah, blah, blah. So he had he had us join this club downtown called Bronx USA. But I used to sit out and watch him practice with his with his people. And my brother, my brother started doing track and I started coaching. Like I was the I was the primary coach for my brother when I was in high school and he was in junior high. And he long jumped and he hurdled and he sprinted. And he made like junior Olympics, he made some youth games teams and things like that. It's not even that I knew what I was doing, but I was reading articles and I would, Mr. Taylor would let me read stuff. He would give me articles and I would sit and watch practice and I would ask him questions. I go, oh, why do you do that? Or oh, my brother's having this problem in the long jump. How do I fix that? And I was in like 10th grade, 11th grade, you know, and he would answer my questions. I don't know if I understood what he meant. I don't know, you know, I, he, he would answer. I'd try and do the stuff he said and he'd give me articles. Mm. I'd, I'd take stuff from the articles and mm. I'd go to the library and, and see stuff. Like Scholastic Coach was big back then. They had track articles and things like that. So Tom Telez, because he was coaching my favorite athlete, was someone that I studied. And then Mr. Taylor, um, because he was the local coach, was really mm. influential. And then because I wrote for the newspaper, I used to have to interview Mr. Taylor all the time. And Mr. Mm. Taylor's daughter, Monifa, was a friend of mine. But she was she was one year ahead of me at Truman. She was the she was the high school national champion in the hurdles. And she got recruited by like Florida and LSU and Texas, and she ended up going to Florida. But like she was the best hurdler in the country. Mm. And so I used to have to interview him about her, interview her, and interview other kids on the team about their, their and so. I got to know him and we eventually developed a friendship. You know, I was young, but he'd let me come over the house and watch track videos, mm. instructional stuff. And I'd ask questions and things like that. So for a 17, 18 year old, I was learning a lot and mm. learning from one of the best coaches in the country and seeing some of the best athletes train. I would just go and watch their practice. Really cool. And then I went to college and my college coach, coach Jim Westcott, who passed a few years ago, he, um, he knew I coached my brother. He knew I was studying a lot of track. He knew I was into coaching stuff. We had a long jumper on the team who was having foul issues. And, you know, in Division Three, you know, especially in 1990, you know, coaching staffs weren't very big. And mm. so our coach was also the head cross-country coach. So in the fall, he was busy with, with cross-country. He'd write his workouts and we'd do them and stuff like that. But I said, hey, Tom, um, his name is Tom Caposa, is having some problems in the long jump. I said, I, I had some success with my brother. Would you mind if I did some work with Tom? Like, pretty arrogant request you know a freshman <laughs> kid from new york who never long jump only coached one kid in the long jump and is going to come to the college coach and say hey can i can i do your job basically <laughs> i think i got an idea and he said yeah okay 
And he let me start working with Tom. And, and Tom and I actually had dinner last weekend. But the other thing he did is my freshman year, like in, like one month in, he gave me the key to his office. Uh-huh. So he's like, whenever you want to come in and read stuff or watch videos, whatever, come in. So I had the key to my head coach, to my coach's office for four years in college. Uh-huh. You know, you probably get fired for that now, you know, security and whatever else. But that's what he did. And because my, my college coach was, a, you know, coaches, they were faculty members. So if a new book came out, like a Tudor Bomper book or a new Speed Dynamics video came out, he could order it from the library and it would come and I could just go check it out. And so that's what he did to, to be influential to me and encourage me um, when I was 18. Mm-hmm. You know, and so my sprints coach, not the head of coach, he left after my sophomore year to take a job at another college because his wife got another job. And we got a new person. And that person was a football coach as well, but did track. And they kind of gave, just gave him track to give him some extra income, basically. And he was a good guy, but he didn't really know what he was doing at the time. Like, he was, he was pretty new to track. And so I started, like, writing my training cycles and, like, running it by my coach. And I would say, coach, what do you think about this? You know, what do you think about that? He would let me write my training cycles. And I was – he would he would change stuff. as, he, But, like, I was writing at that point my junior year of college – 80% of my training, you know, wow. in my senior year, probably like 90% or more. And he would make tweaks and changes. And he would comment, hey, coach, what do you think about this? And oh, you should do one more of this. So let's, and I wrote my training my senior year, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, and then he let me start working with some of the other sprinters and hurdlers and, and put input with him and the other coach. And that to me, you know, being 50 and having coached since, since then, since the 80s basically, is amazing. Mm-hmm. Because I, you know, I didn't. I didn't know what I didn't know, you know? Right, right, right. And so right. that's how I got started. That's cool. So you mentioned write, writing for the the newspaper and stuff like that. Like, where did, did you have some sort of journalism aspiration as well? And yeah. where did that go or how, how did that play out? So it actually worked out relatively well in that when I got to college, I did some writing for the school newspaper, but I also got a um, a, a job in the in the communications department hmm. and so in the communications department sports information was under that so i became the student sports information director hmm. and so we would do things like we would we would do the stats for the football games right. and the basketball games and things like that and we would write articles for we didn't have a website back then because it was 1991 but we would help put together the articles that were going to the alumni magazine we would do things like they had these things called locals back then so let's like say a football player uh at the end of the season, maybe had uh, 10 touchdowns and 200 rushing yards. You write a little piece up, um, maybe two paragraphs to the local paper, along with a picture, and you send it to them. And you do that for a bunch of a bunch of the players. And they were called locals, you know, creating local press for your school, basically. Right. You do that for a bunch of the sports. And then we'd put, put together the media guides. You know, they mm. had, we had media guides for, in, for um, fall sports, winter sports, and spring sports. Football had its own media guide back then. And we worked heavily on that one. And... So I did that. And then um, because of the relationship with the local newspaper and the communications department, I got an internship during one winter with the local newspaper. So I built the relationship there. So I did that basically through college. Hmm. And so when I got my first paying job as a coach after graduate school, I was the head track and field coach. I was a sports information director and I was the assistant athletic director. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, it, it, then my next job, I was so, at McKendry as associate head track and field coach, and I was I was assistant sports information director. So right. those things help, you know, because you know, small schools, people have different hats. Those things helped me be employable at a level that I could afford to live at. 
Mm-hmm. Did you go right into your master's right after your undergrad? Or, yeah. yeah. Right after 94, when I graduated from college, I went straight to Smith College um, and got my master's in exercise and sports studies. And there I, I was assistant coach for track and field. So your decision to do that was sort of con- sort of f- framed under the fact that you wanted to go into coaching. So you wanted to know more about sports science or exercise science. Is that sort of why you did that? No. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, there's two, there's two things. So it was like the people were telling me, you know, basically the people I knew, and at that time, it was everyone that coached that was, you know, had a full-time paid coaching. They kind of had a master's degree. So it was kind of like, you know, you got to get a master's degree to coach in college. That's mm-hmm. what I, like, I wanted to do. But I was I was a philosophy major. And mm-hmm. I'm pretty into philosophy and really enjoyed it. And, and I strongly, strongly considered going to get a PhD in philosophy. Mm-hmm. I kind of consider myself a philosopher coach. People tease me and call me the Yoda of track and field. <laughs> but because I'm always thinking about things, whatever. But like the philosophy PhD is seven years. Mm. master's degree in coaching was two years and I was like I can't afford to be broke for seven more years and that's really what it came down to <laughs> thinking about what I want to do and I, and I enjoyed both equally I enjoyed philosophy as much as I enjoyed track mm. and so um I went that route and here I am so I I, I believe you're you're married and you have two older kids and one younger one is that it I, yes. yeah and and the lady that you married is that did you meet her when you were in college or after college no I met her at McKendry College Um, She was an athlete there and um, I coached her for her first two years. And then, so from 98 to 2000, and then in 2000, she left to go to Abilene Christian, um, Mm -hmm. which is a pretty famous, they were a big time D2 program. We were NAIA and at McKendree, we weren't, we didn't have a lot of kids on full scholarship. She was on a significant scholarship, but she's from Jamaica. Mm -hmm. She was paying like $3,000 a year to go to school and not, 2000 US, and that was a lot in Jamaica. And mm. at that point, at the end of her sophomore year, she was like um, maybe a five time All American and two time national champion in the relays. And the head coach wouldn't give her a full scholarship. And at Abilene Christian, they went to give her a full scholarship, plus her high school coach was going to be a grad assistant there. So she went there. I ended up going to Syracuse University, getting my first Division I coaching job. And then, like a couple years later, we started dating. And then we got <laughs> That's awesome. So as you're getting into like that first job that you had, um, what about the experience? Because meshing all these things together, you you mentioned three different hats you were wearing. Um, what told you this was the right thing for you to do the rest of your life? Like what what did you fall in love with that you that kept you rolling through it? Yeah. So when I was in grad school, um, a couple of things I should say. Um, that helped, you know, that, that earlier when I was coaching my brother to college, that very much helped me fall in love with it. But then again, to go back to my coach, my college coach, Coach Westcott, um, I was really into speed dynamics and knowing Seacrave and stuff at that time. And Lauren was putting on this thing called this elite sprint seminar. And he did this in the fall of 93. So going into my senior year, my senior year. And this is how my mind worked. And I mean, I, it's weird to think of it now. Cause I'm like, man, that was really weird. I was like, mom, for Christmas, for a Christmas gift, can I get a plane ticket to this seminar in Vegas? Mm. Mm. And I, made, I had enough money to buy for my registration. My college coach said, well, our women's head coach was going to the seminar, and our, our sprint coach for the program, men and women, was going as well. He said, you can just stay with Coach G, which, you know, now you probably couldn't do because, again, you know, kids can't stay with coaches and violations. But it wasn't like that kind of thing. It wasn't like, oh, if we do this, you know, I'll, I'll stay at Kobe. which just like, he's trying to help me out. So I stayed with Coach G. And so I didn't have to pay hotel costs and I flew to Vegas and I did this two day. It was an all day seminar, like nine in the morning to like seven at night, 
two straight days of intense sprint pedagogy, biomechanics, you know, neuro, you know, you know Lauren Seagrave, you know, neurobiology and all kinds of words I'd never heard before. <laughs> you know? And it was like, whoa, like opened another world. Because I'd seen this be the name of state, but doing it in person, it's like, mm. whoa. So that, so my second year of grad school, I also did, um, you could either do a thesis or a special studies project. I didn't want to do a thesis because it was too much research. And I didn't want to do all that. But I, I, did, I, did a, I did a book. I edited a book um, and collected articles. And some of the people that I met at the Elite Sprint Summit are like Tony Veening and Tommy Bottom, who both of them are very good friends with to this day. They contributed articles. Mr. Taylor, the person I wrote, I talked about, he contributed articles. I collected articles, edited them, did interviews, and put together a book called, just, it was called Sprinting and Hurdling. And that was my special, special studies project. I ended up selling it. I finished it in 96, so I probably sold it for about 12 years, you know, probably made $10,000 total, you know, over, mm-hmm. over the time. You know, it would pay for things like my first Brower timing gate. I got that through sales of my book. And I didn't have any, I wasn't making any real money. Mm-hmm. And things like that, you know, I was like, oh, you know, I'll sell you this, you do that. MF, MF carried it, Sprinkle carried it, a couple other places. And so those kind of things. So when I was in grad school too, we had a science library at Smith College. And I was into like the biomechanics and things like that. So I would go... We had um in our in our science lab at in grad school for our, just our cohort of people in, in the exercise and sports studies program. We had a biomechanics program where you could digitize film and get velocities and get ground times and air times and all that stuff. And it was it wasn't very advanced, but it was new to me. So mm-hmm. I would take our kids and put them in and digitize and say, "Okay, this is where you're at." And so I was really. Helped me get into it, along with the speed dynamic stuff in Lauren, along with the research I was doing at the science library. You know, they had biomechanics and sport and general exercise and sports sciences and things like that. Um, where I could read, I was reading probably five articles a week, mm. you know. And um, so that happened. And then when I was finishing, and as I finished the book, Tony Vini was the co-chair of um, Women's Sprints development for USA track and field. He said, Hey, you're going to Iowa. I want you to be my regional sprint coordinator um, for the women's sprints. And it was a job title. Didn't have much responsibility, but it was cool <laughs> sounding. But what it did was it meant that I got to go to the um, junior elite sprint seminar they had every year. And it was mm-hmm. him and a guy named Tony Wells, who was a very famous high school sprint coach in Colorado. And he was always developing national champions, but at, at this elite junior elite sprint seminar, it was a week long thing at the Olympic Training Center in Chula Vista. So they'd fly me out. I'd hang out and just help out as needed. Whatever they told me to do, I'd put these cones here or go, I was I was the lackey. But they didn't ask me to do that much. I just got to be there for a week and sit. And what they would do is they'd fly out the top 10, top 15 sprinters in the country, 100, 200, 400, 800. And they would instruct them on how to test and what to test for and how to train and how to set up training. I mean, at a real high level. And I'm just sitting in the back and I'm taking notes and I'm asking and back back in the dorm, I'm asking questions. And so I got to do that for like five summers in a row because I was, Mm. and on top of that, I would go, I got invited to go to um, the U S championships and the U S junior championships. They'd fly me out or whatever. And they put me up and give you per diem. And what we would do is we would mark the track Um, and a hundred meters straight away. We mark it every 10 meters and then the oval stuff every 50 meters and we'd film it. And we film on the old VHS tapes. And you hit, we had this thing with the camera called a character generator. And you hit it before the race started so that when you could film, when you got the smoke, you knew when to start zero. Mm. You'd film the athletes and there might be five of us. And people would have different sections of the race. And you, you'd focus on your part of the race. And then later on that night when all the races were done, we'd go to a room, we'd put in tapes, and we'd start 
writing down the times. Like, you knew when zero was, so you know, okay, this person is displayed at 10 meters. It's displayed at 20 meters and 30 meters. And you look at the intervals. And we learn how to break down film. And then we produce data sheets for the coaches and give it to them the next day. So you, you'd finish the meet at 8 o'clock. We'd grab some food. We'd be in the, in the video room from 9 to like 1.30, 2 o'clock. And then do the wow. same thing the next day. So for like 12 years, I did that. So, I mean, these are the things that like got me really into it. And as a young coach, I'm in these environments, in these rooms with these people who are really, really good coaches and mm. are really influential and I'm learning. That's awesome. And so the other thing that happened um, when I got the job at Iowa Wesleyan, um, I, I got paid $18,000 to be the head track coach, um, assistant athletic director, sports information director. So it wasn't that much money, but it was the best offer I got out of grad school. And it had benefits. I had a job for like $10,000, $12,000, no benefits. But when I was finishing grad school, there was this, um, you, the Women's Development Committee and the Men's Development Committee for USA Track and Field put out this like a newsletter, basically. And it had these videotapes you could order. And some of them were the Tony Wells tapes. And I ordered those, but they also had some stuff from Dan Paff. And the track and field quarterly review also had an article from Dan Paff. So I started reading his stuff. And he was one of the presenters at the next NACATA Congress. So Victor Lopez used to put on his Congress every fall um, for, two, for two days. And Dan was going to be the next one. And so I negotiated and I said, okay, you pay me this much, whatever, but I need to have at least X amount. It was like 1200 for professional development because I wanted to go to this Congress. And so it was in Puerto Rico. It was at the Olympic Training Center and it was in October and it was Dan Paff. It was um, Jerry Clayton. It was um, Joe V. Hill, who everyone knows is a great distance coach. And it was Dave Holman, who was a really good throws coach. Those were the four presenters. And I took copious notes and I still have them to this day. Dan talked about his path with Donovan and training theory and things like that, because this is the fall of 96, so after the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Talked about the injuries he had with Donovan and the adductor tear and how he got him back and all these things. I didn't understand all of it, but but you know, I, I got enough of it. And Dan said, if anyone ever needs any help or has any questions, reach out. I took him seriously, you know, usually I'm, and I was, I mean, I was a nobody. So the next year, one of my kids gets injured. I had a high jumper that I had a high jumper that was having issues first. And she was a five, two high jumper, you know, which is not special, but she was my best kid on the team. She went to, you know, she qualified for nationals in NEIA. Um, and I couldn't get over five, four, we couldn't clear five, four. And we didn't have a track to train at most days. And so I, I said, Dan, what do I do? And how do I, he goes, send me some video and I'll take a look at it. So I drop a video in the mail to him at Texas. And um, he writes me back, sends me, Three big Jesus de Pena books and articles and 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 Jesus, you know, Jesus was the biomechanics person for the high jump for USA track and field that time and you know world famous. He sent me biomechanics reports from Jesus and things like that and some stuff from James Hay. I mean, the packet was like this, you know. And he says, "Hey, give me a call when you get this." And then so I'm on the call and he's like, "Yeah, you know, I think she's um, suffering from too much embarrassing rotation and this that, and the other." Now I didn't even understand. I thought embarrassing rotation was like, "Oh, the rotation is like actually embarrassing." So I'm like, "Oh, shoot, I'm screwing up." I didn't understand the biomechanics term, but I'm I'm just writing notes because he's talking over my head. I don't. I'm just okay I'm talking to Dan Path here. And, you know, got better. But then the next year I had recruited. We were really bad as a team. I had a really good team the next year. I had one of my best sprinters get hurt hurt her hamstring. And I remembered that Dan talked about the energies he had with Donovan. So I said, well, shoot, let me call Dan. Again, you know, like, I'm just thinking like, I'm just, I'm just, just 
called in, 22-year-old guy. And then takes my call or call me back and said, hey, I can talk at this time, you know, let's talk. And he's like, you know, you know, where's the injury and what do you see and what do you feel? And I'm like, I don't know. Like I, she, he goes, okay, you know, do this and this. And he's talking this acupressure point and this acupressure point and, you know, and this reflexology point in the foot and um, you know, check this muscle and this muscle and this. I'm like, the hell is he talking about? <laughs> now, I have taken kinesiology. So I understood some of the muscles. So I, was, I wasn't completely in the dark. And this is, nine, this is 97, early 98. But Monifa Taylor the girl I went to high school with that had gone to Florida and won a national title, she was she was um, also trained to be a massage therapist. So I called her, so Monifa. I was talking to this damn half guy. He told me, look at this, this, and this. What do I do? She said, oh, okay, you can want to get this kind of book and this kind of book and look this up. And so that's how I started learning therapy. <laughs> and she, three weeks later, she ran in her, a race and she ran one-tenth of a PR in a 200. So I'm sold. <laughs> well, and that was the big, that, those two conversations were the beginning of my relationship with Dan Paff. Wow. And now, you know, 25, 30 years later, you know, but those are the things that helped me yeah. get a clue and understand. Like, I would see Dan at meets and he would talk to me like we were long lost friends. <laughs> and then to this day, one of the best compliments I've got. So I was coaching at McKinsey at this time. Um, there used to be this old meet called the Cannon for Me. It was at Butler University at this at this local rec center, basically. But all the school Texas would come, LSU, Florida, everyone would fly in there for like two weekends. I had a girl that won the 60 and a guy that won the 60. All these schools. And I'm feeling like, but Dan, Dan um, his people didn't compete till Saturday. So he wasn't there on the Friday night when my kids won the 60. The 200s were the next day. So I see him on Saturday. He's like, hey, Kevin, how you doing? I was like, oh, man, I'm doing great. Good to see you. He goes, man, like your crew was flying last night. Way to go. I was like, damn, notice what my people did. It was like, it was like you could have pushed me over that he even knew that my people ran, that they ran well and they won. It was like, he's like, he's like, oh, you guys were flying last night. I was like, oh my goodness. You know, so that's, that's, cool. that's my story. That's beautiful. What, um, what is it that you, if you take it apart, that you really like about coaching? Is it solving problems? Is it creating performances in your athlete? Is it seeing them grow as human beings? Or is it all of those different things? Like what, what, all do, you, of them. what do you, yeah. Quick break here. We'll be back with our guest in just a moment. We've been lucky at Leave Your Mark since the very beginning almost that Matrix Fitness has come on as our main sponsor and they remain steadfast to this program because they know how it serves the community at large the same way they serve the human performance community as well. And Basically, if you need something in the world of human performance, whether it's to build a performance facility or training facility or fitness facility, whether it's a home facility you're trying to build or a hybrid facility out of the garage to work with clients, it doesn't really matter what the actual goal is. They have a product for you. They have the equipment and they have the service capacity to make sure that you're getting what you need when you need it for what you need it for. And that's the key is they are a full service organization. They are worldwide. They are one of the biggest uh, equipment manufacturers in the world for human performance. And they remain dedicated to bringing great products every day to you, the consumer, so that you can do what it is you need to do, which is take care of your clients and or take care of yourself. I encourage you to go over to Team Up 
withmatrix.ca and check out their products today. Ask them the questions you need answers to, and they will do their best to take care of you. Thanks again, Matrix, for taking care of LYM. Do you struggle with finding the reason why your client keeps coming back to you with the same injury problem or why your client that you're training is having limitations in their performance? Do you find yourself challenged with how to progress the exercises that you're going to do or regress them or understand what actually is going on with their movement and what may need to be tweaked or changed or cleaned up so that they can function more appropriately and perform better? Do you find it challenging sometimes to work in or with other practitioners and professionals so that you can create a solution for the clients or the team or the organization that you're with? Well, reconditioning is all about providing you with an operating system for navigating those environments and those situations. It is a fundamental process that scripts and brings together the worlds of therapy and performance in uh, a way that no one else is really doing. It brings together applied neurology, the foundation of uh, why we move and how we move, and gives you the tools to make the changes and understand where you can take your tool set and be more tactical with it and get greater intervention uh, outcomes and better outcomes in general for your athletes and for your clients in general. So this is not just a system for athletes. It's a system for every human being. And we also believe that every human being is some form of athlete. So we need to look at the human being, what it is that the human wants to do and take care of business when it comes to getting them prepared to do what they want to do. So if you're interested in upgrading your professional practice Run over to reconditioninghq.com today and take a look at our offerings. Uh, We have a beautiful course curriculum and program that takes you from point A to point Z or Z if you like Z better than Z and helps you take care of uh, all the people that you need to take care of on a daily basis. A reminder that the doors are open for application to the LYM Life Lab that begins right at the start of May, and this month we'll be taking applications, sorting out who's going to be a part of this program. We want people who are dedicated to self-reflection and growth and contribution and want to make a change in their world and be the best they can be. I suggest you head over to lymlab.com today. Check out the program on the LYM Life Lab page. If you want to, there are two free downloads there that you can jump on um, just to get you started with instigating change in your world and uh, working on your mindset and other skills that we're going to be dumping into and having a lot of fun with in the program. There's a lot to it. Uh, If you read the fine print, so to speak, on that page, the Leave Your Mark Life Lab page, you'll see some of the different things that you're going to be learning, the things we're going to be doing, and how we're going to operate through this next year. I want to uh, invite anybody who wants to instigate change in their lives and create the best situation for themselves under the guidance of mentorship and community. Jump on it today, uh, head over there and apply. And if you've got any questions, just feel free to PM me. Take care. We're back. Enjoy the podcast. Um, I mean, I really enjoy investing in people and helping them 
grow and reach their potential mm-hmm. on the track. Of course, you know, that that's like people say, Oh, it's not about performance. Like I care about performance. Like I want to run fast and jump far and throw far and stuff like that. Like, I don't want to just suck, you know, but like, I don't want to just run fast either. I want people to develop and grow <laughs> and learn the sport and learn life. You mm-hmm. know, like track will hit you in the head, you know, and, and anyone who thinks they figured it all out will get humbled really quickly. Like, you know, when mm-hmm. you come off a great year next year, you're like, you feel like you can't figure it out sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of it, the enjoyment is being on the journey with the athlete mm-hmm. and going through things together and developing a relationship and trust where it's like the kid says, hey, coach, I'm not feeling that great today. Um, I know we have this workout plan, but can I do X? You know, in a respectful, intelligent way. And when you have enough of a relationship, you say, hey, no problem. Let's let's do that instead. Um, we'll get back to this when we need to. You know, that's a relationship. You have, to, mm-hmm. you have to form that and form that trust. Or, you know, for you to say to a kid, I know we have this in the workout, but I think you should do this instead. You know, or I think you can do this. Or you go into a meet and say, hey, you know, I know we had talked about maybe running this fast to hurdle four, but why don't we, I think you can go better than that and pick it up, you know, by challenging them because mm-hmm. you trust them and them mm-hmm. challenging you because maybe they have that standing relationship to say, Hey coach, I can do better or today. I can't do it today. Like one time as an example, just like Gabby, when I was coaching her, I was on her about something technically and we we're working on something and she kind of blew up at me. She's like, coach, like if you want me to do it, I can do it at like 90%. I can't do it all out. But if you give me some time to do it at 90% in like two weeks, I can be able to, I'll be able to do it. And she was really annoyed with me. I had to step back and say, Okay. And two weeks later, she was lighting it up. You know what I mean? Like, it was like, it was like, she was like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pushing her. She said, coach, you know, like, and, but we had enough relationship. Where I was like, let me step back. Let me chill. And then she was dead on. Like she was hundred mm-hmm. percent accurate. You know, not every kid could do that. And I wouldn't take it from any kid. Mm-hmm. So, how, how have you, um, I'm sure you've experienced where you've had a, an athlete that you knew had potential, but they didn't believe in themselves. And how did you, how did you, what, strategies did you use to sort of convince them that they did have it and and where did they go after that so to speak um generally speaking generally i find that you know i coach i feel like most women that i've coached that i've had a lot of success with didn't initially believe they could be as good as they became Mm. um and i don't think it's because i did anything special but i think it's like they just underestimated like i've had i've had women that were world-class that didn't think they could win the conference I had guys that couldn't score in the conference think they were going to break the world record, basically. You know, like, is you like, what are you talking about? But, like, a lot of times it's showing them things that they're doing versus what other people in that situation have done and mm. saying, you're already doing this. You know, mm. and I've had, say, I've had three athletes that have run this fast or jumped this far, and you're doing the same things they're doing and even better. So there's no reason to think that you can't do that or better. Um, or sometimes it's like, Comparing with the train with the Susie over here is running 54-2. You beat her every practice, every time. Why are you running 56? You know, and just showing them that like, like the numbers don't lie, you know, getting them to believe in the work that they're doing. Um, mm-hmm. and then getting to maybe make the lifestyle adjustments um that allow them to reach into and tap into what their potential because, you know, bad lifestyles can ruin great workouts. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it's just, Hey, you need to sleep. Like you need to go to bed by one o'clock. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I had a girl that ended up being a world junior bronze medalist and a four time all American great kid. She wouldn't sleep her first year. Like she would just up watching Netflix, you know, 
<laughs> and they just she just thought it was okay. And I was like, you and then when she started sleeping better, like performances took off, you know. That's um, awesome. but you know, kids think yeah. the only person of them like, oh, he's no he's my son doesn't think I know what I'm talking about. He likes to sleep. <laughs> and I'm okay, like, you need sleep. <laughs> so I get it because I didn't think my parents knew what they were talking about either. None of us believe our parents know anything right. really, but you were born May 30th, right? You said. Yes, I'm going to read your purpose from my little book, The Day You Were Born. You're you're a Gemini 3, so your purpose is to learn from the belief systems of others and from them to construct your own truth and sense of justice, to become a leader through your ability to apply your wisdom and knowledge to any situation. A soul occupied with great ideas best performs small duties. Harriet Martineau. To handle the big things in life, we must first be able to take care of the of the everyday challenges. Jupiter or threes have the philosophical approach and the wisdom f- from experience to get ahead. Mercury is the the masses, and when you combine it with Jupiter, you've got a leader of people. These souls know how to take advantage of anything that comes their way. Josephine Baker, the black entertainer who took Paris by storm, used what made her different to make her a success. Foreign places bring good luck to the threes. They love to travel and expose themselves to new places and ideas. George Bush, the 41st president of the United States, was better at foreign affairs and domestic issues. A Gemini 3 who is still living at home hasn't come into his own. (laughs) That's pretty cool. (laughs) um so you mentioned the lady who eventually became your bride what what did she how did you negotiate the lifestyle of being a coach and keep you know being a a good dad and a husband and all the other stuff because it is a it is a challenging industry to be in comes to your time uh constraints so to speak i mean i can tell you that i'm still trying to figure it out <laughs> I got married in 2023. Um, in 2003, sorry. Um, but there's two things. One is my wife coaches. Mm. So that helps a lot. Um, we've been on the same staff together at UTEP, but she coaches at Wellesley College now. She's coached at Leslie and other schools. And um, she coached at Andover. You know, I went to high school for two years. My son's going next year. But she gets that. Like, I have a friend, many nameless. Um, he goes on the road and his wife's like, Oh, you get to go on the road, you're out with your friends. It's like, man, we go to the track, we go to the hotel, you might grab a meal with your friends, you know, like, hey, let's get dinner. Okay, you gotta eat, right? And then I see you tomorrow at the track, we hang out, see you next meet or next what like it's not like we go to the track, wild, crazy party, get the athletes, we do a meet while on the club, like you know what I mean? Like we're, we're working. It's 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 Serious work. Um, so she, because she's been on track staff and she coaches track now, and she gets that it's like a lot of it is, you know, bus or plane, hotel, track, back, home. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like it's not it's not this fantasy adventure insanity. Now there, mm-hmm. sometimes if we're away for a week long meet, you might have a fun night, you know, things like that. But it's not it's not the debauchery that people might think it might be. Mm-hmm. And so I've got a really good wife in that regard. And she lets me, allows me to do what I need to do to to feel fulfilled in my job. I'm kind of a workaholic. Mm. I've gotten better as I've gotten older, but I'm still kind of a workaholic. And I feel a lot of responsibility towards my job, maybe even too much. You know, like like if if I don't feel like I'm doing a good job at work, I feel less important and less... um, like I'm robbing somebody in some sense. I don't mean I gotta work every minute, but I feel I feel like 
program, I feel like I have a big role to play. And maybe mm-hmm. I'm not in my own heart to give myself a purpose, but I take that seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, I take the role of educating people and being part of their education seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to, when I recruit people, I try to fulfill the things that I, I sold them in the recruiting process. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like that integrity matters to me. And mm-hmm. so that's a lot of work. And I, and, you know, I don't want people to, to graduate and feel like, Oh, I could have had a better coach somewhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes things just don't work out. Mm-hmm. I never want to be because they felt like I didn't work hard enough for them and didn't dig deep enough. And mm-hmm. so with that kind of mindset and attitude, you know, I could approach it differently and have way more time for family, mm-hmm. you know, but you know, my family graciously shares me basically with my athletes, you know? And, um, so that, that's one answer to how, how it Mm -hmm. works. But I think that as I've had kids and become older and understood balance more, I've become less unbalanced. I'm still unbalanced, but, but I'm, I'm better than I used to be. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think I, if someone asked me and said, gave me true serum, put my hand in the Bible, I don't think I could be a 50, 50 person. Right. Probably 55, 45. Certain times a year, I'm 65, 35. But I used to be like 85, 15, which just mm-hmm. isn't fair to anybody else, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I would get back from a track meet. Like, the bus got to the parking lot at 11.50. By 12 o'clock, I was breaking down film. Mm-hmm. Like, I couldn't sleep. If I, could, I couldn't sleep if I didn't know the exact splits from a race and touchdowns from the hurdles that night. I, I, mm-hmm. Like, I wasn't going to sleep without having that information. Now, right. it might wait a couple of days. You know, like, when you when you look back to a degree like and, and this may be challenging to answer the question but when you look back at how you worked when you were younger and and we all know that when when we're younger you, you you're sort of raw and you've got to sort of vest yourself in things to understand things and to experience them and as you as you get older you maybe don't need that same level of experience to make the same kind of decisions that being said when you look back sort of for the younger coach where do you think you put too much time into some things that you probably didn't need to. And if you went back and did it again, you'd, you'd probably carve out that 5% of time or that 10% of time and give it back to your family or to your yourself. And instead of vesting it in your coaching, so to speak. What's hard about that is I think that because I did those things back then and got that foundation and that depth of knowledge and depth of experience that now I can relax more. Um, so it's hard to say I wouldn't do it, but I'll, but, but a more tangible answer is that probably training design, you know, like, like developing month long training plans and, and two months, like how many times they actually came to fruition, you know, like, mm. like seven weeks later, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, so, but you know, you don't know that at <laughs> yeah. the time. And, I, and yeah. back then everything was training theory, training design, you know, periodization, periodization. And it's, it's a real thing and it matters, but I mean, I don't, I don't even plan seven weeks out. I might plan two weeks out. I kind of have an idea, okay, two weeks from now, I want to shift here, do more of this. Mm. But I'm not writing that cycle yet. Right. You know, whereas I was writing like, okay, in, in January 21st, we're doing this. And on March 10th, we're doing this. And in between that was scripted and how many reps and sets. And I was tracking tonnage and tracking contacts and tracking volume. Okay? Man, it's for the birds. Now, I'm not saying a young coach shouldn't do that ever. Mm-hmm. But you don't need to do it. You don't need to do it every year for ten years or twelve years. Right, right. You know, once you've done it a few times, you should get some trends and analysis. Okay, this is. But you know, I thought that stuff was the end all be all. Mm-hmm. Like I used to spend Sundays writing training for hours, and individualizing for each kid for hours. Um, and 
there probably was something really good in it because I, I learned a lot and I got to see things, but I don't need to do that now. Mm-hmm. How have you managed? Like, I'm curious about working at Harvard for the last 10 years, how you've managed the academic demand that is placed upon your athletes versus the demand of what they want to do successfully as athletes. I'm, I, you know, every school has an academic demand, but you're at an Ivy league school where, you know, with a reputation for education, how, how do you, how, how do you balance that for your athletes or understand it for your athletes? Um, a couple of answers. One is even in recruiting, we tell kids like, we're not going to recruit you and Harvard won't admit you if we don't if they don't think you can do the work. So if I go to bed and say this kid is great, they're gonna break the world record. But the admission doesn't think you can you can hack hack it, they're not gonna admit you. So if they admit you, they think you can do the work. And Harvard has a 98% graduation rate. And so it's unlikely you're gonna be one of the two percent. Like, you know, mm-hmm. the odds are in your favor. So there's that aspect. But then two is that I tell them that, you know, I'm not going to coach you in a condescending way. Say, oh, you're an Ivy League student athlete, so I'm not gonna challenge you and push you to the level that you can be at. You know, I feel like that's cheating the kid. Mm. Now, like, that doesn't mean we don't make concessions at times for academics, but I don't think that's different at Harvard than it would be at Portland State or at Syracuse. I think, you know, track and field is serious. Like, it's, it's, some, it's what I do, and mm-hmm. you chose to do it, whether you're a walk-on, whether you're at a non-scholarship school or scholarship. Like, you chose to be in the program, so let's, let's, let's get after it. Now, with that, you know, if you have a chemistry paper due next week and you need to spend an hour actually doing some research and you communicated that in an intelligent fashion, Joe, you don't have a problem. We can work around that. But get what I don't do well with, just my personality and my belief system is like, coach, I can't make the practice. I'm behind on my chemistry. Um, I'll see you tomorrow. Like, whoa, I've been to college. I went to an elite high school. I went to elite college. I went to an elite graduate school. You know, so I know what a syllabus looks like. That chemistry thing was not given to you today. It was on the syllabus a long time ago. And now it's Tuesday. So you knew you had this all weekend. Now, are you telling me, I want them to be honest, like on Friday night and on Saturday night, you didn't hang with the crew and you were like, I got this chemistry thing to do. I need to get on it. And you woke up Sunday, had breakfast and were on that. And that's why you can't. I respect that. You know, you really, that's your story. Hey, you know, more power to you. You've been busting your ass. You're just behind a little bit or just that hard. But you know how it goes. And I've been there. Nah, I'll get it done later. Guys, yeah, yeah, I'll get it done later. Sunday you're sleeping because you're maybe hungover or because you just don't want to get out of bed. <laughs> then you got this other assignment, dude, this other assignment. Now this day comes, you're like, shoot, I didn't do what I needed to do. That's not for me to really be, that's not my problem. That's the problem you created. So I got to suffer because you suffer. It doesn't mean I won't let you go, but you're going to get a lecture about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I feel like that's part of the educational process. Like, hey, don't play me for a fool. Don't just say, coach, I didn't get this. Just say, coach, I screwed up. I didn't plan my time well. Is it possible for me to either leave early or do something on my own today so I can get this done? That's, that's like you took ownership. You know, you explain what happened and we can have a short conversation. I'll let you be. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I mean, you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, that's yeah. Harvard or anywhere. And mm-hmm. I feel like when I first got to Harvard, I felt like, and I feel like it's even going back a little bit. I'm trying to fight against it. People were like, oh, academics first. I'm like, no, it's not just academics first. It's academics are really important. And so is track. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have to pick, yeah, you should choose your academics. But, like, most of the time, you don't have to pick. 
if you plan well and you plan ahead and you're, you're thoughtful and intelligent, you can do both at a high level. Hmm. And that's my approach to it. So I think people always thought like, oh, well, you know, you can't do this at a high level. You can't recruit these kind of kids and like these set some set some boundaries, set some expectations, be honest, be straight. Okay, now let's go forward. And mm-hmm. that's what I think was allowed me to be mostly successful at Harvard. Sometimes it's got me in trouble because kids were like, oh, but well, then you shouldn't. I really think you shouldn't do this. Mm-hmm. If, if your academics are impacting you in such a way that you need three days a week to not be at practice, well, something's off in your lifestyle management. Right. Now, if you're saying this one week of the year, coach, I'm slammed. That's a different conversation. That's that's an anomaly. You see, so I mean, all that stuff is fine. I've had kids that have doing thesis, and we've said, hey, we're not going to train on Tuesdays all semester. We're going to let you do extra work in your thesis. Or mm-hmm. kids say, hey, next Tuesday I've got a paper and a and a midterm. You know, can I just warm up? Yeah, do act the rest on your own whenever you get time. That's an intelligent, reasonable request. They thought ahead. They know what's coming. They're, they're forecasting. That's not even a problem. It doesn't even bother me. Now, if that's every week. You know, you see what I mean? So, like, at Harvard, we have really bright kids that, that the school admitted that said they're capable of doing this work. And so I'm expecting they're going to handle themselves accordingly. And that most of the time, because they're young people, um, when things are coming up, we're going to have a conversation in advance that's not panicky. Mm, very cool. So that's that's my personal approach to it. It works most of the time. It gets me in trouble once in a while. <laughs> last, last question. Um, because, you know, being in the coaching industry, you're going to have certain group of athletes that have unique successes, but most of them are going to go on to, you know, finish their athletic career and go on to something else. And are are you lucky enough to keep in touch with a lot of the kids that you coached? And, and is it pr- sort of a prideful um, <clears throat> sense for you to see what they've accomplished career-wise or professionally as well as uh, what they did in their track career? Very, very much so. I mean, you know, the track stuff, is what you put together for four years, day to day, you know, slogging them together in and out, in and out. And that's that's a source of pride for sure. But like seeing them go on and and, and go to grad school and and certain jobs and industries and even change careers and have families and kids. Some of them are coaching now, some of them are doing different you know, just the pride is in that you feel like you feel like as a coach, you invested in them and that you're a part of their life and some piece of you or something that you taught them helps is carried them to this, to this point in their life. Mm-hmm. And sometimes kids will tell you, coach, you changed my life or coach. And I would have never thought of this that way. And it's not that I'm necessarily doing anything special. It's just the relationship and that relationship allowed me to be influential. Mm-hmm. You know, they accepted what I was trying to say or pitch or, or maybe push them another way or, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. you see kids like, like sometimes you see kids that, uh, in the wrong major or going down the wrong career path. What I mean is that, especially in this day and age, especially when so many people think, you know, you go, you get an education to make money. Mm. And my, I'm a philosophy major, you know, so I'm, a liberal, I'm a liberal arts guy. So you, my thing is you go to, edu- you go get an education to learn and find something you really enjoy and put time in it. And that helps you develop skills. You know, if you do architecture, you might decide to be an architect or not. But because you enjoy architecture, you're going to invest in design and invest in thinking about design and how to put things together and how things work together and you know what are the prerequisites needed to build something or bring bring something to fruition. Like it's a it's the it's the thought process behind what you're doing. You know whether it's chemistry or philosophy or English. Like you go to college to learn and learn how to learn and learn how to think and to navigate and negotiate. That's that's to me the point. 
Mm-hmm. Anyone that says you go to college to be a doctor or a lawyer, like I get annoyed with them. You know, you know, you can do that. You, you can you can become that, but that, that's not why you go to college. To me, mm-hmm. um, that's not that's not the greatest benefit of college. You know, right. to me, it's it's learning how to think and learn, and then relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so the pride is in seeing people that have taken that that allows you to to be a partner with them, and then they've taken it to something else in their life or somewhere else in their life. And that's really cool to me. Um, mm-hmm. And hearing them tell you, hey, coach, I learned this from you, or because we did this, I was able to do this type of thing. Um, you know, it, it strokes the ego, but it's also gratifying. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Nice way to finish, Cabo. It's nice to talk to you for an hour and discover your life. So Thank thanks you. for taking the time. Thank you. Appreciate mm-hmm. it. You have a good evening with your family now. Okay, I appreciate it. Um, thank you. This has been, this has been great. It's been awesome. Great. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome. <laughs>